It's good to see everybody here this morning. Let's take our Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians. If you still got it open from earlier, 1 Corinthians. We're going to look at chapter 15 today. We're celebrating something today that people think is crazy. We're celebrating the idea that someone who died lives. And even in the first century, this was not a common option for what you would say about dead people. If you did a survey of all the beliefs at that time, you said, hey, what happens with those who pass away? Resurrection was not anywhere on the top 20 of popular choices of what happens. We deal with such beliefs as reincarnation. If you were good in this life, you come back as a, I don't know, unicorn maybe? I don't know. Uh, but if you were bad, you come back as a fly. Well, we can, we can look at that through uh, the lens of the Bible and understand that's called one clear thing, work salvation. And let's be honest, if you came back here, you really didn't get saved from anything, did you? So that's dangerous. You had some people who believe that when you die, you just cease. You're just done. A lot of us would like to think that's true. Sometimes the idea of a place called the lake of fire is unbearable. But I think one of the greatest travesties in Christianity is that we have shied away from talking to people about the fact of, without Christ, you have no pardon. Without Jesus, you have judgment. That's all you have. So yeah, it's going to be one of those sermons today. And we don't have any Sunday school today. Which means I get to preach as long as I want to. Exactly. And if you leave, you're rude. We'll just go ahead and say it. So we pick up in a very interesting book. If you know anything about 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians is the church that just went on spring break and never came back. They're the church that was dabbling in sin. All kinds of amazing and crazy things were going on. And everybody seemed pretty okay with it. And Paul said, no, 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 no. Here's what I hear is going on there. So I need to sit down and write a letter to correct some of your thinking so that your behavior is corrected. One of the big problems they had, which was going on in the church, was that people were talking about that the resurrection of the dead was not possible. Now notice, that wasn't some pagan people out in the middle of nowhere. That wasn't some people who bowed down and worshipped the sun that were coming up with this idea. There are people in the church in Corinth who are saying the dead are not raised. That strikes a nerve with Paul because of what the resurrection symbolizes. So I hope that this connects with you in some way. We're going to start in verse 1 of chapter 15. It says, Now I make known to you, brethren, saved or unsaved, saved people, the gospel, the good news which I preach to you, which you also received, past tense, right? They've received it. In which also you stand, present tense, right? And here's the reason why. Because when you believe in Jesus Christ, you are immediately something that is called justified in His sight. You are immediately seen by God as righteous and spotless, completely free of sin because He sees you through 
the person of Jesus Christ. Without Jesus Christ, you have nothing and no one standing between you and God. He sees you exposed for all that you fully are. But when you hear the gospel and you believe it, it's like God puts on Jesus lensed glasses when he looks at you. And now what he sees is the righteousness of his son on you and I. That alone is worth celebrating by itself. Because I know me. And you know you. And I hope to God you don't know me. And you hope to God that I don't know you. Because we would damn one another quicker than you could blink an eye. Thank God for the grace of Jesus that goes beyond our judgment. So notice in which you stand. And this is kind of a tricky little phrase here. We may read it and just move on, but verse 2. By which also you are saved. That should actually be translated, you are being saved. Speaking of present tense saved. You have been saved from the penalty of sin against you, which is death. Eternal death, if you've believed in Jesus. But notice that Paul is saying this gospel that he preaches is good to currently save you. I need to be currently saved? Yes! My goal is that everyone here would walk out of here saved today. To be saved from the power of sin in your life as a Christian. Why? Because every person in here still has this flesh hanging on the bones. And your flesh wants to do things that your mind finds abhorrent. And yet we still dabble in it. So we still need to be saved from the power of sin that tries to reign in our lives. Notice what he's saying. This good news that I preach to you, it can do that. Question is, are you thinking about it? Are you focused on it? Is your mind on things above or is your mind on things here and now? So he says, by which also you are being saved if... Notice there's the contingency. If you hold fast the word which I preach to you. In other words, if you don't hold fast to it, you're just participating in sin like somebody that's part of the world and doesn't know Jesus. There's too much of that going on in the church with Christians. Too many Christians are living a part of what they've been bought out of. It's like a dog returning to their vomit is what we're told. It's gross. It's disgusting. It's appalling. But yet, for some reason, if we don't have the gospel making the difference in our Christian life, we return to it. So notice, the good news has a sanctifying effect, a holiness effect. It sets you apart in that aspect. If you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Now notice, he's not questioning whether or not their belief is genuine. He's saying if you believed in Jesus and if He saved you, what good is it if you keep living a life that is apart from the truth of the Gospel? Have you ever noticed how women like to compartmentalize things? You ever been in a fight with your wife? Never! We got a lot of smart men here. It's also April's Fool's Day, so notice how that works. But have you ever been going through something and she can just set it on a shelf and close the door and go on about life and she'll pick it up a few days later. And we're sitting here plucking out our eyelashes 
Because we got to fix it and fix it now. And we're getting a serious case of the tremors. It's very interesting how a lot of people want to try to compartmentalize Jesus and what he's done for them and live our lives in the world and think that we're okay with everybody we work with and everybody we talk to and the friends we hang out with and everything that we participate in. And somehow, Jesus is good for religious stuff, which is automatically a wrong way of looking at it. But he doesn't fit here. I'm telling you, that's one of the greatest lies that Satan has ever told the church. To think somehow that the truth of Jesus Christ is not welcome in the rest of life? That's odd. Because if it is the truth, it's the truth all the time. For everything. So notice, it is possible for us to believe in vain, to believe without benefit. To believe in Christ and have eternal life and be going to heaven and be sealed with the Spirit and be guaranteed for the day of redemption and have forgiveness of sins. But to be walking through life like we were still dead when we're very much alive. So notice what he's saying. Hold fast to this, otherwise you believe in vain. Otherwise it becomes no benefit in the here and now. He came to give life, future, and life how? Abundantly. When is that? Just when we die, it's now. Too many Christians are not living the abundant life. And so he says here, verse 3, 4, here's the explanation. I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Now, if you did some study on Paul, you would find out that he was persecuting the church. It's actually believed that he killed thousands of people before Jesus showed up one day, spoke to him, and knocked him off his donkey. Now, you probably know somebody that needs to be knocked off their donkey by Jesus, but that's not the topic of what we're talking about right now. In doing so, he was then given a calling to serve the Lord for the rest of his life. And he actually went out and spent about 13 years in the desert with no one but God. He knew the Scriptures back and forth. All he had at that time was the Old Testament, but he did not understand it in the light of who Jesus Christ is. And so with that being said, he's saying that God gave him the gospel through Christ. And he says here, I'm going to give to you. It's of first importance. It's the most important thing that you've got going on here. Because it's what brings people from death to life. He says, number one, that Christ died for our sins. That Christ died for our sins. That Christ died for our sins. Does that fall on deaf ears? Has that become routine? Is that stale? Yeah, Jesus died for my sin. I get it. Is that how we view it? Or do we realize that everything that we have done, past, present, and future, and get this, when Jesus died on the cross, all of our sins were future to Him. All of them are paid for. All of them cost blood, and not just any blood, perfect blood. The very blood of God in order to take care of. Your record has been expunged. Nothing exists there. Spotless, free, clear. The first thing of first importance Paul wanted them to know, number one, 
Jesus died for your sins. The price that was necessary, what you owed God, was paid in full. Important truth. But notice what he says. According to the Scriptures. In other words, the Old Testament told you this was going to happen. It's a good verse, Isaiah 53.5. Anybody remember Striper from the 80s? Anybody remember them? Christian heavy metal band. No one? I'm the only person. Praise the Lord. I've got tickets to go see them on the 18th up in Green Bay. I'm so excited. Because I'm going to do this all night. It's going to be great. And I get to meet and greet after the show. Exactly. Good stuff. I'm excited about it. Because I'm going to worship. And I'm going to encourage them because they're brothers in Christ. It's going to be sweet. That's their verse, Isaiah 53 5, that they use. Let's take a look at it. You bring it up, Mitch? This thing is cool. There it is. But he was pierced through. For our what? He was crushed for our, crushed for our what? The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging, by the stripes that he received, we are what? Healed. Let me tell you this very clearly. Jesus doesn't do a halfway job. Jesus is not a poor servant and He is not an incomplete Savior. He is a full Savior. He is an all-sufficient Savior. He is a complete Savior. And when it says He died for your sins and the Old Testament told you that it was going to happen way in advance, 600 years before it ever took place, He is telling you that the best God had being Himself, He put forward in a body like ours to experience everything that we would possibly know so that he could properly identify with us and die a horrible death while he's being spit upon and mocked and people are rolling dice for his clothes because you and I can't stop lying. Because you and I can't stop murdering people with our hearts. Because we can't stop lusting after others. He pays that price. He knows it all. He deals with it all and He deals with it perfectly. All upon Him and everything great upon us. Notice He says here, it's according to the Scriptures, verse 5, I'm sorry, verse 4, and that He was buried. There's your physical proof. You know, there's actually people that want to talk about, anybody heard the swoon theory? They had to add that swarthy name to it in order for it to have something, right? The swoon theory. Jesus just kind of passed out on the cross. And when they took him down and they had wrapped him up and all this and put him in the tomb, he was still alive. He had just passed out. Think that's true? No. In fact, when you think of the whole idea of the time comes to bash the knees, to break the knees so they can no longer pull up on the nails and get a breath because they're suffocating to death. And they go over to check Jesus. Do we need to break His knees so that He will die more quickly? 
so that we can become clean and eat on time. Sounds like Baptists and Methodists fighting over who's going to get to Dino's first, doesn't it? It's terrible. But in doing so, no, 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 we think he's dead. Well, a guard comes up and takes a spear and pierces right under here, right under his ribs. And outflowed what? Blood and water. Why is that? Roxanne, why is that? What's around, what's around the heart? What's around the heart? Well, the lungs, yes. But coming up underneath it, it's fluid in a sac that encases your heart, known as the pericardium. And when you pierce it, that fluid comes gushing out and the blood from the heart comes gushing out with it. Think he was dead? He was dead. In fact, it's interesting, in his resurrection body, we see that he has the scars. We see that he can appear and disappear at will. We see that he eats fish. I mean, he's okay for Fridays, right? That's good. But, we don't have any mention of blood. All of his blood poured out for us. And they buried him. That's a sure sign you're dead. At least I hope we don't bury live people, right? So notice that he was buried. There's your physical proof. And he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Prophecy being fulfilled. In fact, we find this in Psalm 16.10. And the interesting thing about Psalm 16.10 is that it's mentioned three times in the New Testament. It's quoted three times. And in every time, it is used as a verse to prove the fact that resurrection was talked about way before Jesus was ever on the scene. Psalm 16.10. Here it is. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, to the grave, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. Or if you have a different translation, allow your Holy One to see corruption. No, no, just as the Scripture said, the Holy One of God will not face corruption. Why did He raise on the third day? What did they say about Lazarus on the third day? I'm going to go see him. He what? Anybody know the King James rendering of that? He stinketh. He stinketh. Man, try using that sometime. That'll get somebody's attention, right? You stinketh. Good stuff. The reason is, is because that's when the rotting process begins. They didn't have formaldehyde and everything else that kids are vaping today. They didn't have all that stuff back then. You realize that's what that is, right? They're vaping formaldehyde. It's the stuff you use to preserve dead bodies. Hey, free in my culture, brother. Don't judge me. Okay, so moving on. That's another sermon. Come back next week. We'll preach that one, right? And then he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and then to the twelve. There's a physical proof. He made himself known. He made himself shown. Here he is to see. Here he is to look at, to converse with. In fact, I love it. They're all hanging out in a room praying. He appears out of nowhere and says, don't be afraid. And they all said, huh! Right? Because that's what you do when dead people appear and the doors are locked. That's what I like about Jesus. He's just chill about it. Why does it surprise you? Didn't the Scriptures tell you this had happened? Didn't I tell you over and over? 
I will be betrayed in the hands of sinners and I will be killed, but on the third day I will rise again. Well, that's what you said, but we didn't believe it. Right? Jesus has got a good batting record. So notice, he appeared to Peter, and then there's the 12, verse 6. After that, he appeared to more than how many? 500 brethren, and not just individually, at one time. At one time, Jesus said, you know what, let's just go ahead and make it convincing for everybody. Let's just rid all doubt. Let's just go ahead and put it out there so that everybody knows, 500 at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have follow, uh, sorry, have fallen asleep. Some have passed away. Verse 7, then he appeared to James, which had to be real interesting because James was his half-brother, the legitimate son of Mary and Joseph. So that had to be extremely interesting at that moment. Then to all of the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born. In other words, he's saying as one who didn't deserve to be born again. He appeared to me also, for I am the least of the apostles, and not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Now stop for a second, and and if you can, if you want to gain a little bit from this, that's great. You realize that Paul wrote 13 books of the New Testament used by God to pen truth. And yet he was a persecutor of the church. I mean, he had papers drawn up by the government that he could go around and just throw people in jail for believing in Jesus. But isn't that just like Jesus to take someone who's that far gone and say, you want to see what grace is? Let me show you. And he reaches out and he flips that person's life upside down. And he draws that person to himself. And he uses them for immeasurable, eternal matters that they never would have been qualified for in the least on their own. Some of you have lives like that. Some of you have lives that were in the polar opposite direction of anything to do with the Lord. And I'm sure if you look back now, you realize, man, it was His hand of grace that got a hold of my life and changed it. Why? Because at that moment, I realized a lot of really truthful things. I am a sinner. When I close my eyes to this life, I am opening them in the lake of fire. There is no hope for me. So when I hear this Jesus paid it all, when I hear that He is a risen Savior, when I hear that He died on the cross for a reason, what am I actually finding? I'm actually finding out that He loved me enough to get in there in my place and to take care of my problem so I could walk as a free person. That's grace. Paul knew it. Paul unfolded it. He says here, verse 10, But by the grace of God, I am what I am. His grace toward me did not prove in vain. Why does he bring up being in vain again? Because Paul was using this new life that Jesus provided for him. He says, But I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Whether then it was I or they, So we preach, and so you believe. Don't let me say it this way, because faith comes through hearing, and hearing through the Word of Christ. When you hear the Gospel, the requirement for going to heaven when you die, for having eternal life, for receiving forgiveness of sins, is to believe what you have heard. There are no works involved. 
There is no submission of yourself. There is no repentance of everything you've ever done in your life. There is no promising to do better last time. All of that is garbage before God because it couldn't get you saved without Jesus. There's no way you can add it to Jesus in order to make that complete. Jesus is not one section of an equation that needs to happen in order to be complete. He is the equation. So now, for all you nerdy Deuteronomy people that are in my Sunday school class, everybody see verses 13 through 16? It's a chiasm. I expect you to show me what it looks like on paper next Sunday after church. You will be graded. Let's move on. Verse 12. Now watch this. Now if Christ is preached that He's been raised from the dead, okay? Which means a resurrection is essential for somebody to understand. It needs to be preached. But look what it says. How do some among you stop? Saved or unsaved? They're saved people. So how is it that some amongst the Christians there say that there is no resurrection of the dead. If the resurrection is the message that we're preaching, and we're told by God He raised Him from the dead, and we've got witnesses to see it, we know that He appeared to these people in this order, we know that the Old Testament told us it was going to happen, and if it didn't happen, then God's a liar from the get-go. So if this is the case, why are there some people who still don't believe that the resurrection of the dead can happen? Maybe that's you today. Maybe you're skeptical. That's okay. It's interesting. Doubt is not a sin. I think that's important. Doubt is not a sin. However, it is a sin to try to operate based off of thinking that that doubt is true. That's a sin. So notice what he says here. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, verse 13, if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is what? Everybody know what vain means? It comes from the word vanity. It's the idea on a cold day like today. You go outside and you breathe out like that and you see your breath for a second and then what? Gone. Try to catch it with your hand? No. It goes right through your fingers no matter how tight they are, right? It dissipates quickly. That's the idea. That's where we get the word vanity from. When you're reading Ecclesiastes, oh Lord, how depressing Ecclesiastes is, right? Vanity of vanities. He's saying vain, vain, vain. Breath that goes away quickly. Gone. So notice what he's saying. If Jesus hasn't raised from the dead, don't tell anybody anything. You don't have a message. It's not worth talking about. You don't have anything that will save anyone because no one can be saved apart from Jesus raising from the dead. It's that important. But look what he says. We preach in vain. But here's the next part. Your what is in vain? Your faith is in vain. Your belief in the object to who is Jesus Christ is in vain. It's vanity. Why? If He hasn't raised from the dead. What good is a dead Savior? Have there been a lot of people that claim to be somebody special who died? Guess what? Still dead. Did they really save anything? Did they really help anything? No. So if Jesus is still dead, who cares? He's just like anybody else. In fact, if he's dead, if he died and he stayed dead, then he probably deserved to die. 
got sin like everyone else. And we know that sin brings death, right? So not even he could escape it. If that's the case, we're in trouble. Verse 15, moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses. It's interesting, that Greek word means fake martyrs. Fake testimonies, false testimonies, empty testimonies is the idea. False witnesses of God. Why? Because we testified against God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. So here's what He's saying. You may say, good grief, you read fast. If the dead are not raised, Jesus is not raised. If Jesus is not raised, God told us that He was raised and told us that He would raise Him. So if we're out there preaching that God has raised Jesus from the dead and He's not raised, we've essentially said, God, you're a liar. God, you're not telling us the truth. Or, worse than that, God, we're not telling the truth about you and what you've done. We're blaspheming. Because we're accrediting God with something that did not happen. So the conundrum is, either Jesus raised or He didn't raise, but don't call God a liar in the process. Don't stamp His name on something that didn't happen. Now, He sums this up for us, verse 16. For if the dead are not raised... Not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is what? Worthless. It's interesting you didn't use vain again. It's worthless. It's empty. It doesn't matter. Let me ask you a question if you're a Christian here today. Does your faith matter? Does it? You sure? Does it play a significant role? I mean, the fact that Jesus died for you, and what if He just died for you and didn't raise from the grave? What role would your faith play then? Is it any good? No, it's not. In fact, I think it's interesting. There's a belief with evolution called the Big Bang Theory. Why do you chuckle? From now on, if I want to laugh, I'm just going to say that phrase and see what you guys do. Oh, sorry. But here's the deal. People who believe the Big Bang Theory and evolution say, there's no resurrection. You can't come back from the dead. That's insane. Why would anybody ever believe that? Don't you know that evolutionary processes have people morphing into these things and it's survival of the fittest and those who are weak would be gone? That's what they believe. But notice that they're also trying to tell you that the way that all that started is there was nothing and all of a sudden something. Now I can't think of a greater definition of resurrection than that. There was death then all of a sudden there was life. That sounds oddly like Jesus Christ to me. So notice that that argument that people want to use to say there is no God, this is the way it started, well, even apart from the Scriptures, you've just admitted you believe in resurrection. Something to think about. Plus it'll mess them up real bad. They'll probably get up and leave at that moment. So notice with that, your faith is still vain. It's worthless, verse 17. And you are still in your sins. Okay, stop. How much have you sinned? Everybody get out a piece of paper and a pen. 
how much have you sinned? Write it down. Just, in fact, you don't have to write down specifics. Just do notches. How many pieces of paper you need? How many trees are you going to kill? All the tree huggers got mad, right? But think about it. How much have you sinned? How much have you sinned today? How much have you sinned just trying to get here? Think about it. How much are you sinning right now? He's only supposed to preach 20 minutes and sit down. What's wrong with him? What's wrong is you came to the wrong church. It's not how we do it here. Think about our sins. If Jesus hasn't raised from the dead, you are still carrying the burden of your guilt before God. It still rests on you. You're not free. You owe. And there's no amount of work you can do to pay it off. That's bad, isn't it? You get in debt, put your nose to the grindstone, you work hard to pay off that debt. Guess what? You will never pay this off. If Jesus hasn't raised, you're damned without hope. That's a problem. That's a massive problem. Thankfully, that's not the case. Notice he says here, Christ has not been raised. Your faith is worthless. You're still in your sins. Then, those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Do you know anybody who's a believer that's died? Guess what? They're done for. Doesn't matter. Nothing saved them. There's no substance. And yet, this is everything that the world would like to tell us that Christianity is. Does everybody see how important the resurrection is? Does everybody see that if Jesus didn't die, we're all just hanging out, taking up one another's oxygen? There is really no purpose for us to be together. Verse 19, if we have hoped in Christ in this life only, in other words, if your hope is right now, and this is all that Christ can get you, He died, and it just takes care of what's going on right in the here and now. But it can't take care of your future. It can't take care of when you close your eyes. Every one of us will die. Understand this. We'll either die or be raptured. It's going to happen. It is a consequence of sin and it is an abnormality that has been introduced into existence because we want to sin. So those are the consequences that bring us to that point. But if that's the case, we only got the right now that Jesus died for. But look what he says there. If we've hoped with Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. There's no point. Suicide is on a rise everywhere. People killing themselves right and left. And let's be honest, apart from Jesus, I can't blame them. Because if you have guilt, and you know that you have guilt because you're having to deal with it, and so you go to therapy to try to deal with your guilt so that somebody else can help you sort through your junk and deal with it, and then they tell you that it's somebody else's problem, and you're just the victim of it, and so now you're projecting all that on somebody else, but regardless of how much you hate that person or tell them off or get bitter with them or block them out or become ice cold or whatever it is, you are still burdened with guilt and you still 
can't deal with it. And you see, in this world, there is no hope. And all we've been told is that we were apes, and that's all we are. Or we're just cells running programs and just doing what we do, and nobody's really responsible for anything. Then yeah, that's the best solution. That's the only way to get relief. Because that's what people are looking for. It's amazing that the God of the universe loves us so much it doesn't have to be that way. That's our answer. If you want to know the best salvation that you and I can come up with from the problems and sins that burden this life, the reason why we listen to the things we shouldn't and we look at the things we have no business doing and we touch the things that aren't ours, if you want to know what our answer, what our salvation is, what does it look like for me to provide salvation? It is slitting my wrist. That's salvation. There's no hope in that. And it is the most selfish and self-centered act that I think any one person can do in their lives. There's no hope in that. Jesus provides a greater hope. Verse 20. I love it. But now. When? Now. Thank you. Sister. Yeah. Somebody's getting saved. Praise the Lord. It's going to be like Blues Brothers in here in a minute. Everybody's going to be doing cartwheels down the aisles. But now Christ has been raised from the dead. Let's pray and go home. You don't get off that easy. All right. The first fruits of those who are asleep. How come I didn't get any hallelujahs on that one? Why do you got to bring you? Uh, hallelujah? Because first, first fruits, that idea messes us up, doesn't it? Let me tell you what first fruits is. You have a property. You plant a field, crops. Things are going well, and you, have, you start to have produce coming up, and man, it's looking really good. I got corn, I got beans, I got tomatoes, I got everything going on. This is fantastic. The idea of first fruits, forgive me, is taking a first portion of what you're seeing come out of the ground and say, you know what, I want to take this and I want to set it aside and I want to honor God with it and I want to say, thank you God. Because I know that the only reason why there's any success in this matter here is because you control the sun and you can control the rain and you can control the ground and you can decide whether or not I receive a lot or a little. And the first thing I want to do because you have set aside something and shown me that you are going to provide for me, is I want to take it and I want to bring it and I want to say thank you, God. Thank you. Thank you. And here's the interesting thing about first fruits: By doing that and by honoring God with the first of what they were given, it also turned around and said, by offering this, I trust that it's only the beginning of an abundance that will follow. Does that make sense? Okay, so with that idea, now read this. But now Christ is raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. There you go, praise God. See, explanation makes the difference. Communication is key. But notice, He is the first fruits. He's the first offering to come forward that guarantees 
there's an abundance behind him. And that abundance behind him is those people who have fallen asleep. Those believers who have passed away. Now he hasn't come yet. So that could be you and me. Now watch what he says here. Verse 21. For since by man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam, who dies? All die. Every single person dies because that is the result of sin. So also Christ, in Christ, all will be what? Made alive. Do you realize that the most important two words in that right there is in Christ? If you are in Christ, you will be made alive. Which means that if you're not in Christ, what? You're dead. Period. You're already dead while you're living. So now, here's something that is extremely interesting. If you want to mark this, follow along with me. Everybody get out your pens. Anybody need a pen? We've only got a few left. They're collector's items now. eBay, they're going for like $9,000 a piece. <laughs> hey, it's April Fool's Day. I can tell you anything I want, right? So, anybody? No one? Okay. Paul does something really interesting. He is going to give you a timeline of how the world's going to end. Here it is. If you want to know what Bible prophecy looks like, he's going to sum it up for you here in about three or four verses, and he's going to show you, so everybody follow along. But each one in his own order. There's an order to it. Christ, the firstfruits. Is Christ the firstfruits of more to come? He is, so he's the first to be raised. He will be raised from the dead. But notice what it says after that. After that, those who are Christ's, at His coming. Do you belong to Jesus? That's what needs to be answered. If that's the case, when He comes, you will be raised. In fact, we're told in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13-18, through 18, the dead in Christ will rise first. Graves are going to burst open. For some reason, cremation's a huge thing around here. I think you guys just want to see God do cool things at that time. He can take the ashes of that body and bring them all back together again. It's not beyond Him. There was nothing and He spoke and there was something. He can do it. And so the dead in Christ will rise first. Those who are living will be risen up with Him. Those who are still on the earth breathing. And we will be caught up into the air to meet Him in the clouds and we will be with Him forever. So Christ is the first fruits. We, at His coming, will be resurrected. You want to know another word for resurrection? Rapture. That's what it is. We will be raptured off of this earth. And I'm not talking about Kirk Cameron left behind weird rapture. I'm talking about biblical rapture, okay? Some of you got that. Some of you hate me now. All right, (laughs) verse 24. After that rapture, notice what it says. Then comes what? The end. Now, he doesn't stop there because he's going to fill in the holes for us. But if you're numbering this, Christ is number one, we are number two, the end is actually number four, and it's the way that the sentence is structured. Then comes the end, and what happens at the end? When he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and authority and power. Him abolishing all rule, authority, and power is number three. So let me tell you what happens. Christ is raised now and He is ascended into the heaven. We are guaranteed that we will be raised 
just like him, bodily raised and caught up in the air to meet him. In doing so, there is a seven-year period that is known as the tribulation. In that tribulation time is when the Lord is pouring out his wrath on people who have been given numerous times to respond to him and have done nothing but abuse his grace and smacked away his hand and told him blatantly, no, I want nothing to do with the pardon of sin. Okay, that's fine. Anybody who rules or is in authority at that time on the earth will be thrown down and put under his feet and he will return and usher in the end when he sets up his kingdom and then after that kingdom he will hand everything over to his father and they will rule forever. So that ruling, that time there where it says he's going to abolish all rule and all authority and all power is that tribulation period. And notice what it says in verse 25. For he must what christ is going to reign christ is going to rule all things and the bible's real clear it's like right down the middle you're either for him or you're against him you're either for him or against him that's important it says here he must reign until he'll reign until a moment He has put all enemies under his feet. That's the end of the 1,000 years. Then what does he do? He hands that kingdom that he ruled faithfully over to his father. It says here, verse 26, the last enemy that will be abolished is what? Death. That's chapter 20 of Revelation, verse 14. Death will be thrown into the lake of fire. No one will die again. There'll be no need for it. Because God will sufficiently cleanse the earth of a sin problem done paid for finished done done i think it's important to realize when we read a passage like this life is fragile no one is safe no one is safe Some of you have got more than a dead bolt and a handle lock on your door. You're not safe. Some of you have taken extra precautions. You have concealed carry. You're not safe. Some of you have gone all out and put up fences and cameras on your property. I'm not safe from you. And you're not safe. There is nothing hopeful in this world. It's sad, isn't it? It's almost like, gosh, man, why are you so depressing? I promise you, I don't want it to be this way. But I will tell you this, I was very much part of contributing to make it this way. I am very much responsible for contributing to the society that we have formed where it's not safe to go to school anymore. Where everybody's on drugs and they're trying to do a real good job to hide that they're on them, whether they're legal or not, whether they've been prescribed or not, whether you really need them or you don't. Because we think that charging our credit cards is a way to victory or to feel better about life because we just need comfort food all the time. Man, we've got a lot of sins that we think are great. 
That's the scary point, isn't it? We are so drawn to our sin. And yet this passage right here tells us very clearly, Jesus came to give you hope from all that. Jesus came to set you free from all that. The things that bind us so easily, Jesus came to take off of you so gently and say, please, be free. Walk free. Live this new life I've given you. He gives hope. Now, I understand it's Resurrection Sunday, and I'm hoping I'll see you all here next Sunday, but I'm not going to pretend like I will. That's not saying anything bad, but I'm not going to pretend like that we have some people here that are believers in Christ and fully affirm and embrace this and say, yeah, more, we're good. And there's some who aren't. You came because your mom wouldn't leave you alone. I know. You giggle, why? Because it's true. I get it. But there's some of you who might not be believers in Christ. Let me tell you very clearly, Jesus died for you too. Jesus paid the price for your sin too, just like He did mine. I guarantee you, I've out you. I am such an object of His grace, it's ridiculous. You wouldn't recognize me if you saw me for who I really am. That's what drives me to my knees before the Savior. It's all about His work, man. So what do we do about, okay, we're talking about the resurrection, I want to go hunt Easter eggs and just eat whatever Mom made and get out of here kind of thing. Let's look at one more thing. Turn over with me to Acts. Turn to the left. I don't want to hammer this whole passage, but I do just want to show you two verses. And I could tell you that I would pray and we would finish, but you know that's not true. I have something to say about it. Acts chapter 17. I do have the mic. Acts chapter 17. Turn to the left. I love the sound of pages. Thank you, God. Thank you. If you don't have a Bible, you needed one today, take it home. We don't want it back. It's yours. You just bought it by touching it, right? It's yours. Please take it home. Use it. Read it. Ask questions. Chapter 17. I want you to see verse 30 and 31. Paul is talking about the resurrection here. And he's actually talking to a lot of really smart philosophers, scholars. If you go to college, he's talking to your professors is essentially what he's doing. And he says here, therefore, verse 30, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. Whatever direction you're going in and how you're thinking, guess what? It's not going to work before Him. So He's telling you, you need a new way to think. And notice what He says. Because, here's the reason why. Get this. And again, this is for unbelievers. If you're a believer here, you can go ahead and go to sleep. Because He has fixed a day. Get this. He has fixed a day. There's a day in which He will judge the world in what? Only lost people. <laughs> I tried to get you. Good job. In righteousness. Like, that was sick and mean. No, I'm just having fun. In righteousness. In other words, there's a standard that God holds to. 
And God not only holds to that standard because that standard is part and parcel of who He is, but being the Creator of all things and making Himself known, if not through creation, then through this. And trust me, in America, we have an abundance of this. There's no reason why someone shouldn't have a copy. There is a day that people will be judged according to it. And there will be no argument of, well, God, that's not fair. No, it's all right because it's all righteous and it's all completely consistent. So there's going to come a day that he is fixed where he will judge the world in righteousness. And notice what he says, through a man whom he has appointed, he set it up for this particular purpose that this person that he has chosen will fulfill. This is a task that needs accomplishment by a particular person. And he wanted to make sure that the the deed got taken care of. And so he did something amazing. Having furnished proof to all men. In other words, he's letting you know that he's not lying and everybody knows it. By doing what? Raising him from the dead. If you are here today and you are not a believer in Christ, understand this. God loves you enough to give Jesus to save you. But He's not going to pretend like we can save ourselves. And for those who smack away His hand and want nothing to do with what Jesus freely offers to you, it's by faith and faith alone that you are saved. If that's the case, guess what? God raised Him from the dead not to just provide hope for those who believe, but to make sure that there would be a judge who is alive to deal with the rebellion. That's the idea. Don't zip up your Bibles now. <laughs> there is no Sunday school. I don't care if the Methodists or Baptists beat me anywhere. I'm not that hungry. But notice, he furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. The resurrection is a hope to saved people. And it is proof to lost people that nobody gets by. That nobody gets away. That deeds don't go covered. That apart from Jesus, you have no pardon. And if you can't be pardoned, you must stand trial for judgment. Here's the sad thing. Jesus Christ has died for the sins of who? All. The world. So that means everything that is necessary to pardon you has been paid for. So why doesn't everybody go to heaven when they die? How come come there are lost and saved people reason is is because they don't believe because they did not believe in the name of Jesus Christ the son of the living God how terrible it is to have all of this proof and all of this done for you because we could never do it and to say no 
believer, how beautiful it is to know that the tomb is empty. How beautiful it is to know that when I'm praying, it's not just going off into space nowhere. There's actually somebody listening. How beautiful it is to know that He couldn't have stayed dead because when He died on the cross, that was the sacrifice, right? But doesn't the priest have to present the blood of that sacrifice? Notice that. Our priest needed to be raised. Why? So He could bring His own blood before the Lord, the temple of heaven, and prevent, or sorry, present that sacrifice for the sins of everyone. We have a living Savior. We have a living Savior. I hope your life is not being lived in vain. I hope it's full of hope. Let's pray. Father, thank You for the mercy that is found in the cross of Jesus Christ and His resurrection from the dead. Thank You, Father, that death is not greater than He is. Father, if death was greater, He would not be God. If He is not God, He can't take care of our sin. If He can't take of our sins, we are in a pitiful predicament. But because He is God, because He is the giver of life, because He is the light of the world, because He is the bread of life, because He is the open door, because He is the Lamb of God that is slain from the foundation of the world for the sins of everyone. I hope our hearts just say thank You. I hope that we're humbled. I hope that we realize this life's not the end. There's so much more. There's so much greater. There's so much goodness to be had. And it's not just the future, it's now. We can live lives like no one else gets to live because of Jesus Christ and what He's done. So Father, I pray that this message permeates our minds. I pray, God, we can't get rid of it. I pray, Lord, that we don't let it slip easily. But that this would drive us gratitude. Thank you for Christ being our everything. We pray it in His name. Amen.